I'm continuing with the session of questions and responses from Lung Po Cha. So it starts off with a question. You often teach us about meditating on the 32 parts of the body when the mind has been calmed. Should we investigate the 32 parts according to the formula? And Paul responds, it's not like that. When the mind is in a state of tranquility, investigation occurs on its own. This is investigation within samadhi. It's not thinking. Uh, sorry, it's not thinking, this is like this, this is like that. That is ordinary mental activity, investigation outside of samadhi. But when the mind is concentrated, there's no thinking. Contemplation arises within tranquility. The discursive mind that thinks about things during ordinary activities and tries to specify how things are is coarse. It's coarse, but still compatible with samadhi. The important point is to have mindfulness in all situations. Mindfulness which is aware of the way things are. Why is it that the Buddha did not have aversion or delusion? It's because he had this kind of awareness. There is no cause for anger coming about. There is no cause for delusion coming about. Where could they come from? There is this awareness ruling your experience. There is nothing more to be done. You've reached an end of doing. You can put it all aside with the mind in full awareness. You don't need to place your attention on anything because the mind is doing it on its own. It occurs naturally. At this point, you don't need to practice samadhi because it's already present. Things can still, can still appear as right and wrong. There can still be feelings of like and dislike, but you just keep letting them go. Whatever things like this appear to you, let them go with the recognition that they are impermanent. You come to know the source of things and reach the place that is called original mind, where nothing is permanent, where nothing is anything at all. That is the truth. Sorry, that is truth. So this is a, a, um, a very helpful sort of a perspective on contemplation, which uh, we tend to assume involves thinking and sort of discursive uh, conceptualization using words and, uh, and ideas but uh, Dumpo was pointing out that in its essence that quality of of contemplation or wise reflection doesn't necessarily involve words uh, and a way to to understand it it's like that that quality of of wise reflection uh, yoniso manasikara or, or dhammavijaya uh, it's like it's the ability of the mind to recognize patterns and how things relate with each other. So that's a non-verbal process, non-conceptual process. Just like uh, with with music, uh, someone who's a musician um, can identify patterns in music, or the the, the rhythm and the, and the melody and so on. It's non-verbal. There's no words. It's all just sound. It's all just music. But there are many uh, and complex patterns that are uh, discernible. Similarly, with um, with dance or with with a painting, you know, you can recognise the patterns and the relationship between the forms in a painting, but it's not conceptual. It's not verbal. It's not um, necessarily to do with ideas. Uh, so that uh, I feel that's helpful to understand. Um, and he uses this phrase: "It's uh, contemplation within tranquility." contemplation within, uh, 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 says, investigation within samadhi, contemplation within tranquility. And uh, as, uh, as he says at this point, you don't need to practice samadhi because it's already present. So um, one of the, the ways of understanding concentration, when the Buddha talks about the way that um, the concentration and insight uh, are, are developed, it's like one of the um, most significant teachings. He says, you know, if there is a quality of contentment and, and physical ease, then there's no need for the mind to wish, may I become concentrated, may there uh, be the arising of samadhi, because it's natural and it's in, it's in accordance with nature. The one who is content and at ease mentally and physically, their, their mind will, uh, will naturally be concentrated. And then it goes on to say, you know, one whose mind is concentrated, there's no, no need for them to wish 
may knowledge and vision of the way things are arise, may insight arise, because it's natural. If there is concentration, that that the tabutang nianarasana, knowledge and vision of the way things are, will arise. So the way I like to describe that is that uh, uh, if you are already at Amravati, you don't need to wish, may I get to Amravati, because you're already here. <laughs> it's kind of like the, it's the, the wish is redundant because it's already been actualized. So uh, I feel that's exactly what Lumpur's pointing to here. You don't need to practice samadhi because the, the samadhi, the, that collectedness is already present. And then he goes on to say, whatever things like uh, like this appear, like or dislike, uh, things of right and wrong, uh, keep letting them go with a recognition that they are impermanent. You come to know the source of things uh, and reach the place that is called original mind, where nothing is permanent, where nothing is anything at all. So uh, yesterday we were talking about things. <laughs> things aren't really things. They're more patterns of, of processes, processions of, uh, of uh, uh, patterns of perception coming and going and changing and um, so and uh, it puts that very succinctly here nothing is anything at all that is truth so any thoughts questions reflections yes Yes, well, the the Thai phrase <coughs> is jit derm, jit derm, which literally means jit is for jitta, the the heart or the mind. Derm means um, previous or original. Um, so if I say is uh, uh, is Anagarika Lindsay the same as she always was? Ben Munderm, right? Yeah, so that derm is like as it was before, or original, or, or the kind of source material. So it's a very simple term, jit derm. So, um, and that um, uh, uh, again, it, it's useful to have the words, but um, the uh, most important thing is using the meditation to to uh, say uh, realize that quality, to know that quality directly, rather than. Just trying to have the ideas straightened and yeah, and kind of all in an orderly pattern. That help. Okay, so to continue. Whatever comes flowing down the stream, when it gets stuck, you cut it loose, let it flow away. What is it that comes flowing by? You don't know, but when it gets stuck, you release it and let it flow on. It is the phenomena of sense objects and mental activity. When phenomena are appearing, you keep on sweeping them out. When nothing appears, you remain in equanimity. Just saying the words is easy, isn't it? This is similar to the business of morality, meditation and wisdom. The way it's usually presented in Buddhism is that you teach about morality in the beginning, with meditative stability in the middle, and wisdom in the end. Sila, Samadhi and Panya. This is a classification that you can remember. But really, with some people, it isn't necessary to begin by teaching morality, like Americans. They come to meditate and immediately settle down into pacifying the mind. You don't need to say anything yet about the usual explanation of sila first, samadhi second, and wisdom third. First, just let them sit to develop a tranquil mind. Then some sensitivity will be born. It's as if there was a poisonous snake in a basket with a lid on it. Even if someone were to walk right next to it, they wouldn't be worried because they wouldn't know it was there. They're not yet aware of the danger. Trying to teach morality is like that. You have to be aware of the habits and dispositions of people in different places. For a Westerner, you can just teach tranquil sitting meditation first. Then, when the mind is calmed, some, some change will take place and the person will see things differently. At first, even if there is a poisonous creature about, the person is unconcerned because she isn't aware it's there. Sila is like that. It's not necessary to go through the precepts one by one. Morality isn't just a matter of reciting I vow to refrain from taking life, I vow to refrain from stealing. It's too slow that way. It doesn't get to the point. Like a stick of wood, it has a beginning, a middle and an end. If you pick up the end, the beginning comes along with it. 
And you can get to the beginning by starting from the end. Or you can start at the beginning and get to the end. You can't insist on telling someone that this is the beginning, this is the end. If people are attracted to samadhi practice, let them develop a peaceful mind through that. Then sensitivity will arise, and they will be able to see things in a new light. Picking up the end, they will get to the beginning, because the beginning and the end are one piece. The changes that come about in the mind through samadhi will enable them to see things, and wisdom will start to permeate the mind. A feeling for what is right and what is wrong will gradually develop. These three aspects, sila, samadhi and wisdom, rotate and develop by turns. Wherever you take up practice, that's fine. The the traditional way is to talk about morality, meditation and wisdom. It's useful and shouldn't be discarded, but you can't cling to it as the only way. Whatever clarifies the mind so it can be aware of the poisonous snake is useful. Then, when there is awareness, there is caution. You'll get to the same place either way. Someone who will teach others has to use whatever skillful means are appropriate. So this is very much in the light. This was uh, this session of questions and answers, as I said, that was during the Rains Retreat of 1979. And so he had been traveling in, in Britain and the US in the spring of that year, so May and June uh, of that year. So he'd sort of fairly recently come back from, from the West and leading that 10-day retreat at uh, IMS in Massachusetts. And uh, and one of the things that was um, was quite striking to the people who were with him and the um, uh, particularly the translators was how uh, you know skilled Lumpochar was in the sense of reading the group and, and seeing where where people were at and he noticed that um, it, uh, that most Americans who or med- American meditators weren't particularly interested in sila they were very uh, focused and disciplined in terms of the meditation and that but the idea of morality and he had a, a certain amount of of um, explanation coming from Arjun uh, Babakro and Paul Breiter and, and Jack about um, the sort of liberal uh, f- uh, type of, of people who are mostly in, in interested and involved in meditation in America. Um, but he could just sort of read the energy in the room and uh, see that people couldn't really, um, the, the whole aspect of Sila didn't, didn't uh, makes so much sense or wasn't so significant meditation and wisdom was was really uh, uh, the uh, center of focus and so uh, the the translators noticed that he wasn't talking a lot about sila but was giving a lot of meditation guidance and um, and so uh, uh, they asked him about this and he said well um, you can tell that uh, you know the american people the meditators are not uh, sila is not such a, a significant uh, matter for them is not interesting to them where meditation is he said so if i if i talk uh, a lot about sila and make that as a, a sort of a preliminary thing or prerequisite thing then um, people are, are likely to be to be put off it's not meaningful to them it's not it doesn't catch their interest so uh, focus on meditation and wisdom and then uh, as you said that they develop some sensitivity uh, uh, first let them sit and develop a tranquil mind then some sensitivity will be born so he, he and when he explained himself he said well yeah after a while if they'll begin to realize that uh, one of the things that is making their meditation less fruitful or less peaceful is the 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 ripple effects of the things they've been saying the things they've been doing so they'll see for themselves that there's a connection between action and speech you know your, your conduct and the meditation um so he said you know they will they will uh, they will see it for themselves afterwards and so this is the point he's making to to the group there that um that was his experience in america and that uh, he was um uh, able to respond to the people and the place the the, the situation he was he was in and thought, oh, okay <laughs> that uh, there was also a um uh one when Jack Cornfield was translating for one of his talks, and uh, uh, and I think Lumpur Chow was talking about the uh, the unattractiveness of the body, um, and uh, and he could tell even though he couldn't understand any English, he could tell that Jack wasn't translating him accurately. He was kind of buffering it for the American, kind of the liberal American audience, and and. Uh, and so it was very again. It was it was uh, one of those very astute moments where Lumpur said, 
you're not in Thai, he said to Jack, you're not telling them what I'm telling them, are you? And Jack said, no. <laughs> so Jack was quite straightforward. And he said, okay, well, tell them that you're not telling them what I'm saying. <laughs> so it was like, it kind of had a sort of meta, M-E-T-A, a sort of a, a, a meta approach to the, to the talk. So, um, but it was, but he could he he could tell just by people's body language and the the way that uh, um, people were responding to what Jack was saying. It's like, oh, it's, I got a suspicion that <laughs> there's a, there's a filtering going on here. There's a, a buffering. So um, yeah, and then uh, this um, it's also it's significant that in the eightfold path, as it's it's usually described. Uh, the first two elements are, are, the, are the wisdom elements, the uh, right view, right resolution, right intention, samaditi, samasankapo. And so the actual expression of the path doesn't really start with sila, then samadhi, then panya, but it actually goes panya, sila, samadhi. Uh, and, that, uh, and there's also a number of places where the, the Buddha says you know, right view comes first. So that uh, what Lumpacha makes um, the point of saying uh, later on in this talk, in this uh, this, this passage, uh, these three aspects, sila, samadhi, and wisdom, rotate and develop by turn. So they they all support each other and relate to each other. But um, that quality of, of right view coming first, samaditi, it's like sort of getting your mind on the subject and getting a, a at least a conceptual perspective of, of what you're doing and why you're doing it, and then that informing the conduct and, and meditation and, and, um, and then the med- then that in, in turn informs the development of wisdom and they all work together. So rather than a sort of linear progression, um, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, uh, it's one of the reasons why a wheel is used as a symbol of the, the Eightfold Path, the Dhamma wheel with, the eight, with eight spokes, because rather than it's sort of going one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, um, and that uh, it's much more the case that it's like individual spokes of a, of a wheel that all support the structure of the wheel. They all work together, and each one is important and supports the others, and is supported by the others uh, in its own way. So that um, that uh, both being able to adapt to the, to the group that he was talking with, and also for an individual, you know, where. Uh, what what things seem most significant or impactful or um, you can relate to uh, most directly, then um, that that's sort of, uh, you you, know, you start where the interest, where faith arises, or where that where things sort of make uh, make sense or um, are uh, uh, significant. So some so like to say uh, right view comes first, and you look up a definition for samaditi, and it's uh, right view. Is uh, formally described as um, accepting the uh, the laws of cause and effect, and the 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 res- uh, action and its results, and that uh, uh, wholesome action leads to pleasant results, painful action leads to uh, unwholesome action leads to painful results, and that uh, using the four noble truths as a framework for experience, so. If you're totally new to Buddhism and Buddhism, and, and it's like, well, what does all that mean? I don't, I don't, what, huh? You don't get any of it, but you know, I'm not happy. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm insecure and, and frustrated, and and uh, I, I feel incomplete. Okay, dukkha. <laughs> but the the sort of formal description of what right view is, um, or right uh, right intention. It might not make sense, or just on paper, the words of it. It's like what? Huh? Can't relate to that at all. But you can uh, then, you know, start with meditation of like, I'm unhappy. <laughs> I need to to do something about this frenetic mind that won't uh, that won't calm down, that won't sit still. So then that becomes a point where the the uh, kind of entry point for the for the practice. Yeah, and I've, for myself, when I first showed up at. At uh, Wat Phan Nanachat, and uh, I was the, f- the first time I ever heard about the, the Four Noble Truths was from a, a, a Anagarika who was given the job of, of finding me a kuti and, and getting me uh, getting me settled. I just shown up without any kind of um, uh, request to stay. I just sort of walked in the gate, 
And uh, so there was this, this uh, Anagarika was the one who taught me about the Four Noble Truths, and immediately I said, well, that's rubbish. You know, I don't, <laughs> that's not right. You know, I don't agree with that. It's stupid. So my, my first <laughs> impression was like, well, the Buddha got that wrong. And so that was my starting point. <laughs> but I knew I was confused and insecure and, and uh, unhappy, and so I knew I needed to do something radical about my mind, but this kind of, these Buddhist ideas were pretty strange, but the people seemed pretty sensible and sane and uh, helpful, so I decided to stick with it. So, any thoughts, questions, reflections? Yes. I had that experience too when I was young, growing up in the Buddhist country. We also talk about that uh, eightfold path, um, you know, and the right, the, the right, the sama thing seemed to me kind of the we are superior than the rest. And what exactly right? You know, we are right. Buddhism is right. So, and then. Right view, right thought, when you translate in Thai, it makes kind of no sense. So, <laughs> anyway, I stray out of this Buddhism a long, long time. <laughs> well, it's interesting that the word Sama, it gets translated into English as right, but it doesn't really mean sort of right as opposed to wrong. Um, and so it, it's more like right as in upright or, or right, something that's fallen over and then you know, my, the, the bookmark has fallen over and you can, you can write it, you can stand it upright. So that, right, that writing is a different right than opposite to, to, to wrong. And uh, Ajahn Tanisaro has a very interesting point. Um, the word uh, summer with one M uh, means attuned. Like a, it's a, a word that's used to describe uh, a musical harmony and so it's in ancient Indian music that um, that was a way that you talked about the the strings of a of a vina like a, a like a sitar being uh, tightened to a harmonious uh, into to form a, a harmonious sound that's that 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 kind of uh, uh, relationship between the tension on the strings that produces a harmony that is called sama that, that evenness or harmonious quality sama and so uh, he relates that to s double m a sama uh, in the in the eightfold path of uh, that it's uh, in a way harmonious view harmonious uh, in, uh, intention harmonious speech action and livelihood and so on and so forth that and in, in harmony with reality, in harmony with Dhamma, rather than just sort of uh, this is the right way and that's wrong and we, we've got it right and you and you haven't the kind of divisive way that it's it's held and uh, so also um, sometimes you see the Eightfold Path translated as wise uh, wise view, wise intention, wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. So that. Um, that kind of superiority conceit or that sense of of you know, this is right that's wrong um, is uh, it, it's it's interesting that you've that you noticed that when or you experienced that when you were younger because it's it's uh, it, in a way it comes from a, a like a, a slightly um, distorted tra- uh, translation of those of those words and uh, so I thought Ajahn Tanisaro's point was was very uh, very astute, and so I often uh, I, I use the word attuned, uh, attuned view, attuned intention, attuned speech, action, and so on. That you know, and what it's attuned to is attuned to to reality, to nature, to to Dhamma. Uh, I I remember what I'm talking about this in the very beginning of your years. I, I started with a book from Gil Fonstal, and he translated this. What I found in the very beginning quite good as helpful, he came up to say, if you see it in this this context, helpful, you. Uh huh. Well, that, yeah, that, that is different. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, this is what I, what I remember. Uh-huh. When, when he, there's a book out on the April Park from him. Very different, kind, kind of different, very, very smooth. Look at it.
Well, it needs to be also to accurate in terms of what the Buddha was saying. <laughs> but needs that they, but uh, I think they, in terms of spirit, that's uh, that's uh, I would say that, that's a good rendering. Okay, so to continue. When a child from the city goes to the countryside for the first time, he'll see all kinds of things he haven't he hasn't seen before, doesn't know about. He'll see a duck and ask, Dad, what's that? He sees a buffalo and cries out, Mum, look at that big animal. He carries on like this over everything he sees until his parents are tired of answering. No matter what they explain, the child keeps on asking because he's never seen these things before and is fascinated. Finally, they just grunt in reply. The child doesn't get tired of it, though. What's this? What's that thing? What could this animal be? There's no end to his curiosity and his questions. But when he grows up, he'll know all about these things, and they won't be a mystery to him anymore. It's like this in meditation. I used to be this way too. But when real understanding came, the questions stopped. Through gaining some maturity in practice and inclining the mind towards investigation, one is able to resolve the questions by oneself. So you have to observe yourself constantly. Each of you has to look carefully to see how honest you are with yourselves and know when you are deceiving yourselves. Thinking is only a matter of conceptualization and creation. If we're not fully aware, we start to believe it as a matter so we start to believe it is a matter of wisdom. So we follow after it and end up with dissatisfaction and suffering. If it were really wisdom, would it bring any suffering? Still, this is something that can lead to wisdom, something that can cause us to see and to know. Don't get the idea that they are far apart. Wherever conceptualization exists, wisdom is there. Wherever there is the created, the uncreated is also there. The uncreated is freedom from conceptualization. The created is conceptualization. So uh, once again, there's some uh, helpful points and that, uh, that sense of the curious child saying, what's that, what's that, what's that? And the parents getting weary. I think certainly I could experience that <laughs> uh, growing up. Uh, but, uh, but it's very, very true. As understanding develops, then the, the, questions, uh, the questions come to an end. So uh, as the, the practice matures, and also you get very used to answering your own questions. And so rather than having to ask other people, you, you know, there's a, a way that we develop the ability to call upon our own wisdom, our own understanding, and, and that becomes the, the, the guiding force. If a teacher is good, the teacher will help the individuals to learn how to, to develop their own wisdom and won't be the one who's giving all the answers, but uh, is helping people to answer things for, the, for themselves. So, you know, the questions being put to other people, they, they tend to dry up over time. Then also, um, to be uh, watching the mind, one of the aspects is you have to look carefully to, to see how honest you are with yourselves and to know when you're deceiving yourselves. So, again, that's a, in a way that's a part of uh, not just morality, but also meditation, where uh, we are taking things for granted, we think something is a good thing to do, or something is a waste of time, and to uh, to be looking at those judgments um, uh, just in working with our, the, the the inner world. Well, is that true? I say my, I'd say to myself that's useful, and I'm, I'm committed to doing that. But but why is it really useful? How's how's it working? Or I say I'm not interested in that. You know, where's that coming from? You know, why is that not valuable or useful? Um, is there a reason why that's being put aside? And so um, that kind of exploring again, not just to to create more mental activity, but to get a perspective on what we call good and bad, what we call worthwhile, not worthwhile, uh, in terms of, of mind training. And then also in terms of our conduct, you know, in terms of the things that we do and how we how we operate. It, obviously it relates to, to that as well. But I would say it's also a matter of, of the uh, meditation practice uh, as well. Then this last paragraph, he's talking about um, conceptualization and, and wisdom and uh, He's also hearing how it can seem like they are they're opposed to each other or they're far apart, 
but then he makes a point of saying, well, you know, they're not actually that uh, they are they are still related. The, uh, this conceptualization is something that can lead to wisdom, something that can cause us to see and to know. So ideas, thoughts, um, words can be um, uh, catalyzing wisdom. That's why we're having Dhamma readings. <laughs> These words can lead to wisdom, otherwise we wouldn't be reading them and, and thinking about them and so on. Uh, they can lead to wisdom. Um, don't get the idea that they are far apart. Wherever conceptualization exists, wisdom is there. Wherever there is the created, the uncreated is also there. The uncreated is freedom from conceptualization. And the, the Pali for that is nipapancha. Papancha is conceptual proliferation and uh, ideation, uh, of overactive thinking. Nipapancha uh, is freedom from that uh, complexifying uh, and proliferating tendency. And it's also one of the uh, the qualities of the Buddha. He was Nipapancha, one who's free from complication. And the created is conceptualization. So the, the thoughts, ideas, words, they're uh, definitely in the realm of the, the created. There's also the, there's um, one short uh, uh, phrase you find in the Anguttara Nikaya, the um, we actually used it as a, a, a kind of greeting for our, our uh, annual Christmas New Year card, which is, uh, um, uh, I think it's Apapanchang Papancheti, don't complicate the uncomplicated. It's in the Book of the Fours, I think, in the uh, Anguttara. Uh, don't complicate the uncomplicated. So that is that, that on its own is a very helpful motto. So, any thoughts, questions before we carry on? Isn't there something it's easy to do that which is complicated or hard, but hard to do that which is simple and, and beneficial? <laughs> I would say that's uh, that's quite true. <laughs> we tend to, we we tend to relish complexity, and that uh, things being sort of complicated or extensive or elaborate. The mind somehow is drawn to that, like um, with particular sounds or, or, or shapes or particular flavors. You know, the uh, the, uh, the mind goes ooh. <laughs> so compl- complexity and it, things being intricate, um, then the mind feels that somehow better or richer or more valuable, and uh, and uh, simple is can, can be very hard to do. <laughs> It's also it's interesting how one of the criticisms of Theravada is how the Buddha, even though there's a lot of words in the Pali Canon, uh, that he over and over again the emphasis is on the the four noble truths, and that uh, he deliberately uh, sets aside you know a vast range of knowledge and ideas and complexity, and. Um, uh, to focus, to deliberately focus just on the on one area of a vast subject, and so that that people criticise what well, Theravada is so simplistic, it's so plain, you know, it's like, and in the the, the northern Buddhist world, you've got far more uh, colour and sort of multi-dimensional, uh, say, um, uh, scope, and some uh, some of the sutras are extremely elaborate and and um, dramatic and. Uh, Colorful, but uh, the uh, I feel it's uh, a part of the Buddha's genius that right from the beginning he he realized let's keep it <laughs> simple is 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 this is what's going to be effective because com- when things get complicated we can get really lost in them, and so that uh, both the, the the teaching of the handful of leaves when he was walking through the the forest at Kosambi and picked up a handful of leaves from the forest floor and said what is greater in number the the leaves on the trees or the leaves in my hand? Well, sir, <laughs> the number of leaves in your hand is very small. The number of leaves on the on the, all the trees of the forest is very, very great. And he said, exactly. What I teach you is comparable to the, the leaves I have in my hand. What I know, what I understand, is comparable to the, all the leaves in the forest. Now, why don't I teach that to you? Because it doesn't lead to peace, it doesn't lead to liberation, it doesn't lead to to uh, to the... Uh, Qualities of of uh, wholesomeness and benefit. That's why I don't teach it. 
Similarly, uh, with Malunkya Putta, one of uh, one of his monk disciples who uh, went to the Buddha and, and demanded that he answer these ten philosophical questions about the nature of the the universe and the you know, the, the nature of the universe and the Atman uh, are they are they one thing are they two things are they separate you know, uh, the and uh, what happens to an enlightened being at the at the death of the body and so on and so forth and there the Buddha. Uh, refused to answer, and Malunkya Putta said, "Well, if you don't answer, I'm going to dis- I'm going to disrobe." And then the Buddha said, "Malunkya, did you when, when you uh, when when you took on the robes when you became a bhikkhu, was there an agreement made that uh, if you took robes, then, then then those ten questions would be answered?" No one was. <laughs> so what are you doing? Saying so you're, you're kind of threatening to disrobe if you don't get those questions answered, and then. Uh, he uh, describes is what I have. There's the there's the declared and the undeclared. What the, those ten subjects and the other all the other leaves on the trees of the forest, they are the undeclared. Uh, why are they not declared? Because they don't lead to 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 peace. They don't lead to freedom. They don't lead to uh, to ease and well-being. Therefore, therefore, I don't teach them. What have I declared? This is suffering. This is the origin of suffering. This is the cessation of suffering. This is the way leading to the cessation of suffering. Why have I declared this? Because this is what leads to nibbana, leads to uh, to freedom, leads to uh, enlightenment. That's why I've declared it. So that kind of deliberate simplicity, you know, he got criticized for that. <laughs> and people felt he was being stingy or it was a bit too plain. But he was an extraordinarily pragmatic teacher, practical teacher. And so that he saw that, uh, well, the point is, this is this is what makes a difference. All the rest is might be colourful and interesting, but it doesn't really make a difference. This is this is the area to focus on. Your know, life is difficult enough already, so just keep the attention on this, and then you know, all the rest is gravy, or partly equivalent of gravy. So I see, yeah, and I would agree with you. It's, it, uh, uh, the complicated and the elaborate is attractive, and the plain and simple can be can be quite off-putting, but um, or not appealing. But it's uh, so it can be harder to stick to that simplicity. May I have something? Um, I heard that from the Mahayana and Vajrayana say that uh, we Theravada uh, Buddha taught us at this level, but they they are being taught a higher level. Very complex, you know, mm-hmm. all the uh, sutra and Mahayana, Vajrayana things. And uh, so there's much more that we don't know. But uh, I, I kind of like that because to, I have to confess that I still don't believe in the Nirvana much because it is so simple and the mind is just empty all the time. I, I, don't, I, I cannot be like that. I mean, I'm not going to enjoy living in the empty mind, like Nirvana. So... If that's what what Nirvana is, but are you sure? But I don't know why. So therefore, the Vajrayana and Mayana were talking a lot about, you know, the world, Nirvana, pure land, whatever. (laughs) It's very colorful. But the, and the but it, it's also the the story goes that um, the the Buddha gave the 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 teachings to the savakas the the kind of uh, in his own lifetime, but then these quote unquote superior teachings were hidden away uh, in a lake you know, I think in the Lake Anotata, and they uh, uh, they were specifically hidden away and then four hundred years later, um, Nagarjuna. Then went to the Naga realm, and uh, the Naga said, "Oh, we've been looking after these these sutras for four hundred years. Uh, we think that the humanity is now ready for for these superior teachings." And so, ta-da! Here they are. So that was the Maha- that was the kind of Mahayanist story about how this whole raft of uh, sutras that didn't exist in the previous four or five hundred years, how they suddenly boop. That they were stashed away in the Naga realm. <coughs> to to me, that uh, <laughs> I uh, I uh, I have my suspicions. I think that's, that sounds like a political story. Yeah. <laughs> but his story sounds good, though. 
Yeah, he was a brilliant teacher, but he might, if uh, if he was told you've been given credit for for fishing out these sutras from the Naga realm, he might oh he might have interesting things to say about that. Like, oh really? Yeah, have to have to put that in my biography, won't you? You know, <laughs> he's probably completely unaware that was going to be, but you know, having the name Nat with Naga in it. But, but uh, anyway, so. Uh, I have my suspicions that it was a, a clever way to say, "Oh, look what we've discovered," and uh, because some of them, the what they call the agamas in in China, they're related to the Pali Canon, but there's a whole lot of sutras that have very very sketchy relationship. That no, there's no there's no equivalent in the Pali at all, and so that um, to to qualify where those came from, it's just the story that people came up with. In my opinion, but yeah, it's also the um, there's a, a another teaching called the the drum of the Dasarahas, which you might be familiar with, and that uh, the Buddha says there was the the people called the Dasarahas, and they had a huge drum called the Summoner to summon people. They had this huge drum, they would beat this drum, and then it would call people from around the area to come to a, a town meeting. He said, but the, this drum was so huge and uh, but and so precious and so special that they kept repairing it and decorating it and and eventually the the drum was was so covered with embellishments and decorations and repairs that it couldn't function as a drum anymore. And he said, in, in the future there will be people who take the Dhamma teachings and they will embellish them, and they will dress them up and they will decorate them and they will make them more colourful and interesting. And uh, and and the the Dhamma teachings will get complete like the drum of the Dasarahas, the teachings will be completely lost in all of the decoration and elaboration. So, in fact, uh, the Buddha predicted that this kind of thing was going to happen. He was a very skilled reader of human nature. Uh, but um, yeah, speaking as one who's spent quite a bit of time embellishing, <laughs> making <laughs> teachings more colourful and. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, appealing in various different ways, or hopefully appealing in various different ways. I, I am, um, I'm aware of that sutta. With uh, to to be, I use it as as a reflection to inform. Well, am I just creating more decoration and more um, elaboration? Is is the dhamma getting lost in all of the all the kind of um, uh, all the the ribbons and balloons and uh, and, uh, embellishments, or is it still? Is it just a, a uh, something that is can still faithfully containing the teaching, but um, is it put into a, a um, palatable form, like the Pilgrim Kamanita, and then the the, the book I wrote, the follow-up book, uh, Mara and the Mangala. And so when I, the the teaching on the drum of the Dasarahas is is kind of right there. <laughs> Composing these things and so like, it's fun. But also, it's good to consider if the if the Buddha talked about nibbana as the consummation of the of the human potential, the realization of nibbana, um, and if you have faith in the, the the wisdom and accuracy of the Buddha's teaching. Then it's like, well, perhaps what I think of, uh, of nibbana is not the actuality of what nibbana is really like. That's where I would steer my thinking if I was you. Perhaps I've made some assumptions here. And there also the the, the teachers like uh, Achanman, Nachanchara, you know, and many of the forest ajans talk about the how the uh, nibbana seems to be an off-putting quality. The people don't want to go. They can't. Well, what about my family? Am I going to see them again? What about my dog? I can't, if, I, if I can't take my dog, I'm not going to go to Nibbana. Yeah. <laughs> In Britain, there's far more you, people are far more concerned about taking the cat or the dog than the, their family members. <laughs> I would humbly say, <laughs> yeah. But uh, again, it's a it's a um, radical misunderstanding, I would say. Anyway, to continue. So, uh, Nungpo Cha talks about uh, Zen teachings here. 
This is pointed out through many different methods by different teachers. In Zen, for example, they have their ways for imparting wisdom. You're asked a question, and when you answer, they beat you. Bam! They ask you again. So you don't answer this time, but they hit you again. Hmm, what's really going on here? I might lose my life over this. How should I respond? What should I do? These methods can bring about wisdom. What to do? Going forward is not right. Retreating is not right. Standing still and giving no answer is not right either. Whatever you try, you only get a beating. Some feeling comes about and you start to seek more deeply for the answer. This is the method of Zen that I read about. It's curious, isn't it? It can really cause people to gain wisdom. However, sorry, however you answer or don't answer, you're beaten. You lose all your ideas about what is right and wrong. You can't move. You can't stand still. What do you do? You come to the end of your tether, but there is still something more to go through. So the mind keeps on investigating to find a way. Their methods are pretty good, I think. It's mysterious, but for us, it's just a lot of thinking and guessing about the way things are. We know something, but what we know is only what someone else has said. So there will always be more things to ask about and learn, just as there are always more doubts. The more things are explained, the further we are from understanding. Why is it like this? What's blocking us? The knowledge itself is blocking us. So you really need to search inwardly. When you keep looking, your understanding will become more subtle. This refined awareness will seem like something very good, but the Zen master doesn't accept it. Get rid of the subtle. I've no use for it. And you get another beating. <laughs> when the subtle still remains, you have to drive it out. You don't know what to do, where to abide or to go, and you run out of options. It's better just to throw it all away. It's taught that all of our thoughts and feelings are just a fantasy world of mental concoction. It's not real knowledge. It's the creation of fantasy, but we feel it's genuine knowledge. It's knowing without letting go. With real knowledge, one lets go. Samadhi has its difficulties. People can get sidetracked. When I sit, I have so many experiences. I see lights, I see colours. They really get caught up in this. When they tell me about their samadhi, there's not much I can say. It's just more childish stuff. It really is like the child fascinated by the animals and asking endless questions. That's what a child has to do, because it doesn't know what the things are. When it grows up, it'll know for itself and won't have to ask any more. So uh, Lumpur Chah had uh, you know, read um, some translations. Uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa had translated uh, the Sutra of Huineng and also the, the uh, teachings of Huang Po, uh, both of which had been uh, translated into English from the Chinese. Um, and so Ajahn Buddhadasa put those into Thai, and so Ajahn Chao had, had read those. And also, but he'd also met a few Zen teachers. Um, in London, there was a... a, a, a a British uh, Zen teacher uh, whom he met, and also a Korean uh, Zen master, um, Sung San Sunim, uh, happened to be in London at that time, and he met uh, he met uh, Lumpur Cha, and, and so and then when he was in America, then Paul Brighter, who was the translator here, had been doing quite a lot of Zen practice, and so um, in Venerable Father. Paul's account of his uh, his life and experiences with with Ajahn Chah, he um, uh, he mentions that Lumpur Chah had a lot of questions for him about Zen and, and Zen methods and understanding. And Paul would sometimes translate other Zen uh, teachings or, or Mahayana teachings for Lumpur Chah, to, uh, and so this is why he's quite well informed about the um, the the kind of method in, in, uh, of of training and the, <laughs> so. Uh, the, uh, and the the various beatings, the kiyosaku, the um, the what they call the holy wooden truncheon, <laughs> the, the kind of stick that you get hit with in the meditation hall. So um, uh, it's a uh, that uh, that questioning of if you can't go forward, you can't go back, you can't stand still. That was a a question that Lumpur Cha used to put to people uh, quite often in the latter years. It's also closely related to uh, the teaching in the Udana, where the Buddha is talking about the unconditioned. It's not neither coming nor going, nor, nor standing still. Um, and, uh, and also this um, uh, 
you come to the end of your tether, but there's still something more to go through. So one of the Zen koans that um, uh, I think Ajahn Chah would have been referring to there is, says you uh, you climb to the top of a hundred foot pole and then you have to take another step. You get to the top of the, the hundred foot pole, but then even though you're at the top of the pole, you have to take take another step. Another koan that I'm very fond of uh, is um, uh, uh, and uh, I know this was I spent when I was living in America. I, I spent time with a few different uh, in a few different Zen communities and Chan communities. So one of the koans that they have is, um, and forgive me if I'm translating this incorrectly, the the elephant easily passes through the window, but its tail will not fit. So the the, the elephant easily passes through the window. But the tail, the tail can't pass through. The tail, the tail, um, uh, the tail gets stuck. So, um, my own pet theory is that's about building projects. <laughs> the first ninety-five percent gets done. The last five percent, the elephant's tail. Oh, the elephant goes through the window, but the tail somehow won't go through. So, I don't think that's the right answer. But, you know, <laughs> I'm sure Japanese monasteries had similar experiences with building projects as we have. There's also the very, very first teaching in the Connected Discourses, the Sangyutta Nikaya, um, is um, a deva comes to the Buddha and says, Venerable Sir, how is it that you cross the flood, like the, the flood of sensuality or the flood of the, the asas, the oga, the O-G-H-A, the oga, how is it that you cross the flood? And then the, the Buddha also gives a kind of um, a similar teaching. He says, um, when I pressed forward, uh, then I was swept away by the current. When I stood still, then I sank. So through neither pressing forward nor standing still, that was how I crossed the flood. That's a sutta number, you know, chapter one, sutta one in the Sangyutta Nikaya. Uh, and then that's, there's no further explanation. <laughs> it's, a, it's just that that's the, the image. That, that you get so neither through pushing forward nor standing still but that um, uh, that both of those lead to either getting swept away or sinking but that um, uh, the the way that the flood is crossed is is mysterious as Limpo Chah puts it so any questions thoughts reflections Okay, that's the end of that uh, that section there. Uh, I think he, it's still a, it's a sort of he's uh, gone into a giving a, an extensive dhamma talk. I think it's still the um, questions and answer session, but it's just he's just giving a very very long answer uh, through this part of the of the teaching. So anyway, we'll we'll stop there for today. <laughs>